I'm joined today by Nigel Farage, the one and only who needs no introduction. But what we're going to be talking about is the Net Zero campaign. Now, Nigel, let's start with the most basic question. Do you think we are going to reach Net Zero by 2050? No, absolutely not. Um, in the UK, extremely unlikely, globally, utterly and totally and completely impossible. Let's dig into the whys then. Um, there's a lot of elements to this. I wonder what you're going to pick up first, though, um, you know, without me prompting you. Well, I mean, the point is this, you know, in 1989, the United Nations put out a statement saying 11 years left to save the planet. If we don't act now, the Maldives will be gone. It'll all be a catastrophe. And it became received wisdom at every level. Tony Blair and others told us the science was settled, that there was a direct link between carbon dioxide and the warming of the planet. Now, it's, it's interesting. We, we've moved on since then, uh, and, and now carbon dioxide, almost unbelievably, is called pollutant. I mean, one of the essential building blocks of life, without which plants, trees, uh, your you know tomatoes you have in your salad, uh, nothing can grow without it, and yet it's caused a pollutant. Now, have CO2 levels in the atmosphere increased? Yes, they have. Is man part of that? Probably, possibly. Why do I say that? Ah, oh, you say, come on, every, every scientist tells us it's happened since the Industrial Revolution. Well, have a little think about this as a stat. Of all the carbon dioxide produced in the world every single year, most of it is produced naturally, volcanoes, etc. Only 3% of global CO2 emissions are from man. Now, that is not to say... That is not to say that we may not be having an impact on the Earth. Uh, it's not to say that the Earth hasn't since the mid-70s, when, by the way, all the experts told us we'd be heading for an ice age. Not to say that things aren't warming. But, you know, there is this whole idea that the science is settled. Science is never, ever, ever settled. And what we've seen building up around all of this is a business consensus and an educational consensus that basically says the more we can frighten young people into thinking the world's about to end, the more money we can make out of taxpayers. I'm sorry if that sounds horribly cynical, but that is genuinely what has been going on. One of my biggest worries about this is I've always considered myself long-term to be an environmentalist. You know, I'm actually very worried about nitrous oxide, plastic in oceans, uh, loss of rainforest, Habitat. I genuinely care about these things, and I feel that our funnel obsession with carbon dioxide actually has come at quite a big cost to many other very relevant and quite important environmental causes. Now, do we want to live in a better, safer, cleaner world? Yes. Would in, in an ideal world we'd be burning less coal uh, and all of these things? Yes, of course, that is common sense. But the practical realities of this. The Earth's population is now 8 billion. It's risen, I mean, it's tripled in my lifetime. There are projections that suggest over the next few decades it will go down, but we're at 8 billion at the moment. And probably 5 billion of the 8 billion we would describe by our lifestyles as being basically poor. And guess what? They want fridges. They want freezers. They wouldn't want a car. Most of them have never been on an aeroplane in their life, but they would quite like to be able to do that. Oh, and they'd like to have the lights on um, of an evening. 
uh, you, you know, most of the world is poor and it, and it aspires to be richer. And that is why the consumption of commodities, uh, the growth of more Western-style living standards is basically a completely unstoppable thing. Now, when it comes to um, our output of carbon dioxide, clearly energy generation is absolutely at the top of the tree. Something like 40% of all carbon dioxide around the world is involved in energy generation. Uh, let me assure you that a few ugly, ugly bird-chomping windmills in the North Sea is not going to solve this problem. Uh, they have been... They can't survive without taxpayer subsidy. It's the poor that pay the costs. And politically, this is beginning to become an issue. And think about it like this. If you look at the growth or decrease in carbon emissions, you will see that the UK has led the world. We, you know, something like 40% less CO2 emissions now than 1990. The answer is easy. We've deindustrialized. We, we, we've allowed our steel industry and our manufacturing to go to India and China and elsewhere, where, of course, they manu manufacture things on much lower environmental standards than we do, and then the goods are all shipped back to us. In terms of global CO2, we're not down at all. We're just deluding ourselves that somehow we are being virtuous and making progress. And the one stat, uh, I think above all, that should stick in people's minds, is as our CO2 emissions have gone down, other Western countries have gone down a bit. China's has absolutely gone through the roof, and the same goes for India and indeed Indonesia as well. In 2023, the world is going to burn 8 billion tonnes of coal. Just, just hold that thought for a second. It's almost incomprehensible. I can't even, even visualise what 8 billion tonnes of coal would look like. Um, so here's the other point. We are causing ourselves enormous economic self-harm. Yes, of course, there's a political consensus in Westminster where climate change has now become a substitute for the Church of England that, uh, you know, somehow there's a wonderful green jobs energy revolution coming. Well, it is. And the evidence is for every four jobs lost in manufacturing, about one to one and a half have been replaced. And yes, of course, there are jobs on wind farms and all the rest of it, but it doesn't compensate for what's been lost. The UK's production of carbon dioxide is now less than 1% of global emissions. Why on earth, long-term, politically, would we make the poor poorer? Would we, make, would we disadvantage ourselves enormously? Would we go on importing oil and gas, which, by the way, we're going to leave for decades to come? And the hypocrisy. There's a coal mine up in Cumbria uh, that could produce anthracite. And, and anthracite is actually a very good coal in the sense that it's a much lower carbon burner than the lignite that the Germans set out of power stations all over Germany. But the key is, you need anthracite to make steel. But there is no means of doing it at the moment without anthracite. But massive opposition to this mine opening up in Cumbria. And yet, the same people want us all to have electric cars, which will lead to the mineral extraction of cobalt, of lithium, of many other commodities across the world on a mining scale that has never been seen before in the history of mankind. So there are some massive illogicalities, if well-intentioned, that come from the net zero industry. And I'm going to call it an industry because that's exactly what it is. And those of us that have been arguing for many, many years that maybe we should just slow down a bit 
Maybe we should think through the implications of what's happening. And I've been doing this for 20 years. And we've called, we've been called deniers. I'm, I'll never forget. I was on a BBC program once with Michael Cashman, the former EastEnders actor, famous because he was the first gay character in a British soap. And he was a Labour MEP. He's now a Lord, of course. And, and I raised these questions about 2005. And he literally, he stood up in the studio across the desk, pointed at me, went red in the face and just screamed, denier, denier. I mean, it was like the sale of witch trials, you know. <laughs> it was quite extraordinary. But that is the mindset that's taken hold. Um, and I mentioned education earlier. You know, we have young upper class um, white women from the top public schools chaining themselves to gantries on the M25. They're all called Jocasta and names like that. Um, you know, so it has taken hold. But here's the point that matters. The logic of the arguments against imposing an act of self-harm, of losing competitiveness, of not having energy security, something that's been highlighted, I think, by the war in Ukraine. The idea that we don't need to do things on a national level because we can just rely on Arab states uh, to send us kit or on the French or the Belgians to send us electricity when we're in trouble. Uh, the, the, the logic of energy security, the logic that cheap energy prices lead to wealth and jobs, uh, all of those things mean I sense and I see with my job on GB News as I tour around the country. I was in Barnsley the other day. I mean, you know, wall to wall, people were saying, look, whether we're concerned or not, why the hell are we in Barnsley, one of the poorest towns in England, having to pick up the tab for the giant offshore industries and you know the £170 levy a year on their electricity bills, etc. So I see a change in the political wind. It's happening in Britain. It's definitely happening in Europe. It's happening very quickly in Europe, actually. Uh, as I say, the Germans have embraced coal once again on an absolutely massive scale. Um, and I think the, the, the only one way that we do massively reduce our carbon emissions is to say, right, we are actually going to go nuclear because that gives us baseload power. There is no problem with intermittency, and it is basically a, you know, it is a zero carbon form. You've got to make the stuff to begin with, I know, but it's a zero, uh, you know, some form of reducing electricity. So if we do go the all nuclear route, then we will hugely in the West reduce our levels of carbon output. But you know, from pressing the button and saying we're going to do this to it actually being reality is 12 years, 15 years, some say it might be 10, but it takes a very, very long time. And so we can't avoid one thing in this whole energy debate, that gas, natural gas, is going to continue to be the single most important factor in all of this for at least 10 years and probably for 20. Because the more wind farms we build, the more we need gas to back things up. And we even, even in this country, we fired up a coal-fired power station the other day because a big anti-cyclone was sitting over the UK with very little wind. So I am predicting with absolute confidence that there is going to be a shift in this, that the even the environmental rationale of you know no uh, cars after 2030 being produced in Britain that aren't EVs, it, it, it's not possible. Um, it actually environmentally, as I say, will lead to the rape of you know, much of Africa and elsewhere to get these commodities. So there's a big shift coming. And as ever, uh, the center ground of public opinion is now some way ahead 
of where the media and the political class in Westminster are. Um, and that means for medium to long-term investing, um, we are likely to see um, some areas that might at the moment be considered to be highly unfashionable <laughs> through ESG and everything else, in fact, start to become practical realities. It's only so long that the political, that the political class can ignore reality. And I sort of finish this little talk with this one point. You know, what is the point in going on importing natural gas and oil when actually we've got plenty here in our own country which would allow us not just to be self-sufficient but actually to become a net energy exporter? And I think, again, I think, Nick, you and I have this chat in five years' time. We'll find this has become a mainstream view. I just want to quickly confirm that you did go to the Maldives purely to check that they're still there about a year ago or a few months, right? Um, so the part of this that then I don't understand is where what gives? Something has to give here because currently the, the UK government and many other governments around the world are committed to net zero by 2050. And that is a legal commitment, uh, you know, in, enshrined in law, the government's policies, the, the developments of economic proposals throughout the country are all judged under this net zero constraint. So is that a, simply a matter of parliament will just pass law to get rid of that? I mean, 2050 is six governments away. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's going to have to change pretty soon, right? I think more, yeah, I think what has to change much, much sooner is the completely unrealistic Johnson, Boris Johnson idea that no, no more internal combustion engines produced in the UK after 2030. The Germans already have shifted on this and said we're going to go on producing internal combustion engines, but we're going to work on fuel. We're going to work, and, and, and I suspect. You know, we may see a fair bit of investment in biofuels coming over. I mean, I, I'm skeptical about it, but I think that will happen. Uh, so we'll be looking for fuel efficiency. You know, Germany, with a big car industry, has come up against the practical reality this can't happen. And if it was to happen, I mean, goodness knows what the price of copper would do. I, you know, I mean, the whole of Chile would be turned into a mine, I think, uh, if, if we had a job. So what will happen is you won't see a U-turn from politicians admitting they were wrong for the last couple of decades. That that doesn't happen. But you'll start to see a slipping of a variety of deadlines. Um, it is more than likely that we'll get a Labour government coming in next year. You know, I, I, I really would put an 80% probability right now on that. Uh, their assault on the North Sea will be even worse than the Tories. I mean, the Tories, let, let's not forget that if you invest money in the North Sea and lose money, you lose 100% of your money. If you invest money in the North Sea and make money, you now pay 75% tax. So already, uh, with Rosebank and other projects, uh, there is you know some, some real questions being asked. But if what Starmer is saying is no new development, well, that would mean not even new wells on existing oil fields. So you could actually see North Sea investment uh, dry up to absolutely nothing. Um, and so we, you know, we could find ourselves short-term in an even bigger mess with this, but that really justifies my point that when the about turn comes, it'll come pretty quickly. I I would certainly, you know, I think five years is a realistic time frame. You know, taking us up to the late 2020s when we're staring some of these deadlines in the face and realizing they're completely unachievable. And, you know, apart from nuclear power, the other way, of course, that we achieve it is to have climate lockdowns is to stop people using cars in cities and to say to families, no, you can't go to Marbella. I I'm really sorry. 
But, you know, the fortnight you wanted in Wangarola, it ain't going to happen. Well, as I say, I think the I think the reality of the political pushback against that is going to be enormous. It's coming. Not tomorrow, not next month, but we're seeing the early signs of it already. The interesting part of that is that it means politicians implicitly or explicitly have to admit that the science was wrong because really trying to save the planet from climate change as they've made it out to be justifies anything, which means if we're not going to be doing that, then we're, well, then, you know, let's see what happens. Let's, I mean, the planet's going to be you know on fire and, and underwater at the same time. Um, let, let's dig into the, to the metals part because that was your area of expertise before you turned to politics. Uh, you're a future trader on the London Metal Exchange. Are you considering setting up your own metals futures firm again, given the boom that must happen the longer we try and stick to these these net zero goals? You know, the amount of copper that has to get mined, the amount of cobalt, the amount of nickel is, is just, well, it, it's not possible. No, it's not possible. Um, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the implications of the prices are enormous. Am I going back into the commodities business? A bit long in the tooth for that now, I think. Although it's not really open outcry anymore, so maybe I could go. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's the other point, really, isn't it? That the inflationary potential of all of this is absolutely enormous. And here we are now, you know, with what well, in this country in particular, the Bank of England more than happy that occasions of this for commodity prices would be absolutely, I mean, huge, enormous. Uh, and again, that's another practical reality of why at some point, you know, this is going to be kicked down the road. And there'll still be people making electric cars. You know, I'm sure Mr. Musk isn't completely wrong to, inv to have invested the money that he has in Tesla. And there'll still be people who are wealthy um, and, and, and who don't need to drive extremely long distances, um, you know, that, that'll go on buying smart Tesla motor cars. And by the way, they're very smart and incredibly uh, you know, fund to drive and all the rest of it. What I'm saying is not that. What I'm saying is the idea that Mr. and Mrs. Bloggs from number three Acacia Avenue will all be buying and their kids electric cars in 2031. It isn't going to happen. Let's turn to the impact on government budgets of all, out of all of this, which is something we've talked about before. We've already got this GDP above 100% now. And what we're really talking about here is is a dead weight on GDP because of higher energy prices and a lot of these industries are disappearing. And then we've also got more government debt because they've got to fund the energy transition with their, their weird and wonderful policies. Are you worried about an economic crisis, a sovereign debt crisis in the medium term as a result of all this? I think we have to look, I think we have to look across the pond. I mean, Biden's you know, so-called inflation reduction pact, which had nothing to do with inflation reduction at all, um, has really proposed the biggest form of government subsidy stroke bailout that's ever been seen in the Western world. I mean, it's almost, you know, it isn't very far away from the old Soviet five-year economic planning. I mean, it is quite extraordinary what they're proposing. And the impact... You know you've gone too far when the EU's criticising you for state intervention. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, 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 and so you look at what Biden has done um, and you see that Ed Miliband, you know, who's... God knows why, but he's back in a prominent position in the Labour Party. You know, he's talking about a 28 billion a year uh, subsidy plan for renewables. And already Starmer's going, Whoa, let's just have a little think about this. Um, yeah. You know, we're not going back to zero interest rates. We've actually returned to normality. Uh, that feels very harsh 
to under 40s with mortgages. Right now, it really does. But we've gone back to a form of normality. Um, and when you think, you know, that our debt repayments and our national debt are now about £10 billion pounds a month, a month, you've got to start to get a handle on what this actually means, you know, for taxpayers and everything else. So, again, on a very similar theme to all of this podcast, there comes a moment when reality actually starts to hit. Uh, we're not there yet. The Americans have got absolutely mad for all of this. We will, and we, we will limply, limply follow, convincing ourselves that the green energy revolution is going to save us. But again, I'm, same prediction. Within a few years, we'll be rethinking all of this and saying, my goodness me, you know, why are our monthly debt repayments 20 billion a month or whatever they're going to be? Let's quickly address that um, point that is dear to both of our hearts. And that's just the simple idea that government policies inherently backfire and fail. There's a news report that came out recently that 80% of the heat pumps in Germany are going to need replacing because they use a particular type of gas that is uh, set to be outlawed by the EU. And this is causing a big uproar in Germany. Um, we've got a recent story about the Siemens wind farms um, struggling. All of these policies assume that the government's interventions in the economy actually have the outcome that's intended. <laughs> I mean, you and I believe that's just not the case. But we're talking here about a level of intervention in the economy that's, that's probably bigger than anything since World War II, where you know every part of our economy is subject to these, this law and these constraints. It's going to be an absolute disaster just... The, the amount of strange bungles is going to be bizarre. We couldn't be further away from genuine free market capitalism than we are today. Uh, and it, as I say, it is basically highly socialist, statist, what the West is doing, you know, on the assumption um, that the state is good at picking winners and losers. It's never been good at picking winners and losers. It's always been efficient. It's always been sclerotic. And in the end, it gets absolutely everything wrong. Um, at the moment, to argue for less government, to argue for free enterprise, to argue for entrepreneurship is difficult. And some would argue in the wake of the 49-day tenure of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, it's become even harder to make those arguments. But it doesn't mean that the arguments she was making weren't right. Because actually, I think they were. Uh, in many, many ways, I think they were. Um, but we've got to go through this phase. And, you know, this isn't just Labour embracing big government. The Conservatives are pretty much on the same track. The EU are pretty much on the same track. And the Americans have gone absolutely crazy. Um, there will be a different political narrative in five years' time. But we're going to have to live through this in the short term. So in the short term... They're going to go full speed ahead. In the short term, they're going to try and build as many wind turbines as they are, even though there are some huge pricing problems coming into the market. Um, in the moment, they will go on with energy levies. Um, we will go on uh, facing blackouts and only avoiding them by burning coal. I mean, the irony of it all is incredible, let alone Drax burning half of Canada, uh, Canadian forests um, up there in Selby, um, in Yorkshire. Um, yeah, yeah, this this will take time to play through. But you will start... To, now, it was interesting. I, I saw even last week a couple of newspaper leaders saying, is it time we rethought net zero? I can feel it. I know it. The one thing in life I've been good at is being way ahead of the pack and seeing where the trend's going. And believe you me, 
uh, there is going to be a massive change. Yeah, it's that gap between what politicians are saying, what people actually want, that you seem to be very good at identifying and, and pointing out and, and then closing eventually when it came to Brexit. Um, and that's the second reason I'm interviewing you, the first being the London medals um, exchange experience. But but on the first one, how far along that political path can they get before something snaps politically? And, and you know, Brexit was, was sort of delayed and put off and obfuscated for, for quite a long time until... You know, what happened happened and, and you managed to, to sort of wake them up what's the same sequence of events for net zero how how bad do things have to get oh look you know you're asking me to sort of look ahead into the crystal ball and predict what will happen as ever as ever it's events isn't it it's it's unforeseen events that trigger a change of national debate you know whether that is a catastrophic blackout you know the lights go out for two or three days not impossible I mean, literally, I'm not scaremongering here. That is not impossible. Um, so whether it's a blackout or something like that, I don't know what it will be. But but something will happen. There will be an event. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you will find people beginning to make the connection. If you ask people, do you want to live on a clean planet? 80% say, yeah, absolutely. Of course I do. And then if you ask people, do you want to pay for it? Ooh, I'm so you see, the, you know, you know, these are the realities of it this and 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 i think you're going to find uh, a lot more public figures a lot more scientists standing up and giving a counter argument which is you know the attempt to pigeonhole anyone that questions this as being you know against the environment and wanting all our grandkids to die in, you know in some sort of blazing inferno um, i think these arguments are beginning to wear a bit thin so it's events it's events something will happen that will really, really, uh, you know, shift the argument hugely, hugely. But meanwhile, there is a growing debate. We're seeing it increasingly in our press. I'm seeing it as I go around the country, and it's happening. Probably Europe's even further down the road than we are, actually. Yeah, I've noticed, actually, in the Australian media, for some reason, they're a few months behind on the scepticism. It might be because of the energy crisis in Europe and the inflationary situation. But people in Australia still seem very positive in the newspapers about net zero. The reality hasn't quite struck yet in the same way, although it is emerging as well. As I say, it, it, it does depend, Nick, to how you ask the question. But that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it's so easy through polling um, and working with friendly newspapers to, to, to get across the perception that you want, or when you actually drill down into the data, it's a little bit different. And then experience is a whole nother level, right? Because you might have answered in your poll that you're willing to spend X amount of money on your electricity bill in order to go green. But when when the bill actually hits, it's a different question. I remember a, a lecturer at university of mine, um, she tried to sign up to the, the renewable power company. Um, and she was a lecturer in energy uh, investing and she was very pro-green, but she was actually, she was a good character. And um, she, she re requested this higher bill in order to you know, pay for renewables. And the person on the other, on the line said, really? Nobody's ever said yes before. <laughs> this is about, this would have been about 10, more than 10 years ago. I mean, the same thing applies to income tax. Any of you can pay more income tax. All you have to do is to ring the exchequer and you can pay more income tax. How many people do that every year? Don't know, but I bet I can count them on the fingers at one hand. Let's, uh, I think it'd be less than that. Let's uh, dig into the investment implications a bit more. You identified natural gas, it seems to me, in, in the short to medium term and, and nuclear longer term. Yeah. Uh, commodities, where do they fit into that? 
Well, I, I mean, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult, given the inflationary style cycle that we're in, not to be bullish at commodities, even if in the end we don't go all electric. It's difficult not to think that, that I'm going to go back to the first sentence or two that we use today, which is about 5 billion of the world's population are relatively poor compared to us. And they want fridges, they want freezers, they want motor cars, they want to go on holidays. That's what they aspire to. And you can't do any of those things without copper. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, here we are in twenty. Here we are in twenty twenty three. You would have thought by now that a reliable substitute for copper as a conductor would have been found. Do you know what? Despite the billions that have been spent in research, nothing has. So, medium to long term, you've got to be bullish of copper, unless you think the whole world is headed for catastrophic economic collapse. And, and who knows? Maybe the West will have a serious setback at some point. But even if the West has a serious setback, it doesn't stop that desire of people in India and China and Indonesia to want to have better lives. So I'm still very much bullish of metals, uh, mediums long term, definitely. Um, you know, What about oil, Nigel? Oil is, I, 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 mean, I think actually um, oil right at the moment, um, I think probably looks quite cheap, to be honest with you. Um, I, I, you know, we will go on using oil for many, many years to come. So no, I'm bullish of energy. I'm bullish of metals. I think these things will be a lot higher in the next few years. Um, yeah, the world, the, the, the aspirations of the world and also the realities that we're going to need this stuff for a very, very, it's kind of almost as if investors are saying at the moment, well, let's not have oil stocks because we're not going to be using oil in five years. Well, I'll tell you what, you're, you're in for quite a shock. Because it's going to be used for decades to come. So that long term, I'm still very bullish commodities. What do you make of the government's efforts so far, especially in the US and also in Europe, to invest in new mines and new production of the minerals and resources that are theater? <laughs> I mean, Osama's going to set up the great British energy company. I mean, can you imagine it? Can you imagine it? A Labour cabinet investing our money in various projects. I mean, what chance has that got of working in any way? at all. Governments don't get these things right. Free market capital gets these things right because it has the fear factor if things go wrong. As soon as you take out the fear factor from economics, you get laziness, incompetence, and corruption too. And I learned these lessons back in the 1970s, and you know what? They haven't changed. Isn't it funny? I mean, you know, two or three years ago, we were talking about modern monetary theory. Do you remember all that rubbish? Modern monetary money grows on trees. We can borrow it. You, know, you don't hear that being talked about anymore. Um, no, th th this is headed up by Biden's gang. Uh, this this whole concept is absolute madness. I think the key point here really is, especially for people of, of the persuasion that you and I, is that net zero is, is an unprecedented intervention in the economy. And history says that those tend to not go very well, regardless of what the motivation is. It you know, brings back memories of the, of the, the Cultural Revolution and um, what was the sparrow one in China where they they, uh, they tried to kill all the sparrows and yet all of these interventions? And I wonder whether humanity just seems to need to go from one sort of crisis justifying inter you know intervention by government to the next. We, you know whether it's the population bomb or global cooling or acid rain or whatever it is. We we just seem to focus on on one after the other and go through these these rolling cycles. I mean that's the great thing through history, isn't it? History teaches us that we never learn anything. 
um, and we keep on making the same mistakes over and over again, and that is what we're doing now. But interestingly, on net zero, of course, remember, this isn't just economic. This is actually social. You know, we will have to, to go along with this agenda, radically change our lifestyles and things that we believe. I mean, isn't it interesting? Right at the minute, in Kent and Sussex, there are severe water shortages. Villages without water for a whole week. And we're told it's okay. The villagers of East Sussex and Kent have got a blitz spirit. Well, let's see how long that lasts. Uh, you know, things that we've taken for granted as being part of our lives in the modern world um, start to disappear with net zero agendas, start to disappear with a rapidly increasing population in the southeast of England, which is the direct link in this case. And if you start effectively saying to people, look, you know, you can't go on holiday in Spain. Um, you can't drive your car in Birmingham on Tuesdays. Uh, you know, you start to say this to people. And that's where we're going. June the 13th, June the 13th, 2023, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, put out a warning. Air quality is poor. Please do not drive your car at all unless it's necessary. Do not leave the engine idling. Don't burn any wood. I mean, you know, if I said to you five years ago, they were going to lock us down for month after month because there was a flu virus going around, you laughed at me. You know, climate lockdowns, these are the things that they're going to do that will lead to the pushback. And yet you've made me hopeful that there's sort of a political movement or the opportunity for one yeah. to try and reverse this and avoid this, and this might just go down as another bizarre episode in, in the history I, books. I think it will, Nick. I, you know, as I say, I, I repeat the point. They will go on down this direction for some years to come. But as they do so, awareness against the stupidity of what they're doing is going to increase. And at some point, it'll flip.